Father, we thank you for the suffering of, of Jesus that's united us here together this morning, and that we get to be united with him. We thank you that uh, we are saved by his blood, and therefore we can now live uh, not for our own desires and our own passions, but for the will of God. Father, we pray that you would work in and through your word and by the Holy Spirit this morning to affect these things in our hearts and our minds and our actions. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Amen. Let's stand and read God's word together. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Amen. This is God's word. Be seated. Life is brief. James says it's like a mist, and we're here, and then we're gone. Uh, also, Moses, you know, he tells us in, in Psalm 90, number, number our days. Teach us, O God, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So pondering that shortness, the brevity of life gives us a yield and a fruit of wisdom. We ask these questions like, Everybody's asked, how, how will we make the most of that short time? Why are we here? What will we live for? What will we do with that time? And, and these are not novel questions. Everybody asks them and everybody answers them in their own way. Uh, the word YOLO comes to mind. The mantra of my generation, which stands for you only live once. Therefore... Live it up while you still can, right? Get the most out of life. Carpe diem. On the other end of the spectrum, we have kind of what I would call the classical uh, evangelical guilt trip, which basically goes like this. Don't you know that God gave everything for you? Don't you owe Him your whole life in return? And the conclusion is nothing short of the remainder of your whole life, aside from spending it on your knees or in the Bible or on the mission field will suffice to satisfy the debt of gratitude that you owe God. The problem with these prevailing answers to the question, what will we do with the rest of our time, is not necessarily the answers themselves, but the problem is they center less around the person and work of Christ and more around the person and work of me. What can I do? How can I maximize my time? How can I please God through my efforts? Peter is indeed concerned both that we make most of the time we have and that we're devoted entirely to doing the will of God. 
Peter says in verse 2, throw everything you have, all of the rest of your remaining days, into living for God and not for human passions. But he begins not with us, but he begins with Christ. He motivates the Christian not by telling us, be true to yourself. Or by saying, he says, let go of your own personal inborn attitude and rather become attached to the mindset of excuse me, of Christ. So it is by taking on this mindset of Christ, this way of thinking that he describes, that Peter suggests that we become equipped for the battle that is the Christian life. So Peter's exhortation in this passage and the central point of this sermon is be armed with a Christ-like attitude. Be armed with a Christ-like attitude. He begins here in verses 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So notice here that Christ is forefront. Christ is center. He says, since Christ suffered in the flesh, do this. Uh, verses 1 through 6 are more than just bare direction to us. It's, in fact, implication and application of the truths he's already been explaining to us. Chapter 3, verse 18 teaches us about the suffering of Christ, even unto death in his body. It says in verse 18 of chapter 3, for Christ also suffered in the flesh, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In 18 through 22, as a whole, we went through, explains how we are united with Christ in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And therefore, because of all of that, because he suffered, because he died in the flesh, and because we join him with and through those things, with our union with him, Peter says, since Christ suffered in the flesh, put on the same mind that he had. So it is the natural progression of the Christian life that if we really are united to Christ in faith, we put on the mind of Christ. It's more than just a, a positive opinion or feeling about Jesus that we have, it is that we begin to think like Jesus. The church is called time and time again in the New Testament to have this unity of mind. Have this mind among yourselves, the authors say. Well, what is that unifying way of thinking? Who gets to decide what that central mind is? I think we all want it to be us. We want it to be our own mind, right? My way of thinking is the most clear, the most precise, the most helpful, the most wise. And if everyone would come around to my way of thinking, we could have unity finally. But Peter says it is the mind of Christ alone which unites the church. And it's his way of thinking which he calls us to adopt in order to stand firm in the battle of the Christian life. So what is this mindset that he points us to? The mindset. It is essentially, I think, here in this context, Christ's way of thinking, particularly about suffering. 
verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3 say, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. So it's better because Christ did it. Christ's way of thinking then is suffering for the good, for the will of God is a better life than living for the self. Um, we get examples of this in the Gospels, specifically John. Uh, John 4.34 says, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. And in 6.38, He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And in the garden, it's amazing. He, he says, basically, I don't want to suffer this cup, but not my will, but yours be done. So, suffering within God's plan is better than comfort within our own plan. C.S. Lewis put it like this, The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and His compulsion is our liberation. Peter goes on here to explain the reason further for arming ourselves with the mindset of Christ. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now what does that mean? For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Does that mean if we suffered we won't struggle with sin anymore? Sin, suffering is a, is a sin cure? You suffer once and I'm done with sin. That'd be nice. If that was the case, I would quit being a pastor and I would open a clinic. Would, and my, my method would be you come in and sit in the waiting room, fill out the paperwork, they call you back, quick diagnosis, yeah, you're a sinner. And then I put you in this room with a group of atheists with sticks and, and they, they beat you and they yell at you for five minutes and then you're cured. You're cured from the sin of sickness. It's scary. I can actually picture somebody coming up with a racket like that to make money. But it's not that easy, and sin continues to be this lifelong battle. So what I think Peter means when he says, whoever suffered in the flesh is ceased from sin, is that sin no longer has dominion over you if you have joined with Christ in His sufferings. When we suffer for the name of Christ... That's a decisive rejection of our own desires, because no one desires to suffer, to live for the will of God. Suffering for the sake of Christ and not buckling under the pressure uh, kind of serves as evidence that we are indeed united with Christ. So our love and our passion for Christ can be all-consuming for us, but it's suffering, really, that puts it to the test. Peter himself experienced this. Jesus, or Peter loved Jesus so much, and his zeal as his disciple outmatched pretty much all of the other disciples. He talked the biggest. He was committed to following Jesus, even to death. But when the time came, he broke under the questioning of a little girl. He was not equipped. He wasn't armed for the battle that was coming his way. His own desire for comfort and, and not to be crucified <laughs> triumphed, and he did not have the Christ-like mind that suffering is indeed better. His weaponry wasn't up to the task at hand, and so he succumbed to sin. 
And I bring that up not to bash Peter, but because Peter here, as the writer, knows the importance of being equipped, of being armed with the attitude of Christ. He knows what can happen if you're not properly equipped for the intensity of the battle. And we know from reading Acts that in the time between his failing and the writing of this epistle, he suffered much for Christ. He even rejoiced at having been worthy to suffer for Christ. So he's not here in 1 Peter merely propounding philosophical ponderings or theoretical axioms. All of this stuff that he's saying to these people is very real in Peter's experience and we will find it to be real in our own experience if we too are united to Christ. So Peter here says very seriously, arm yourselves with Christ's way of thinking. Why is that? It's because the battle is not against flesh and blood but against the ruler, the authorities, the prince principalities and against the spiritual forces of evil because our battle is really against all other things it's against sin it's against those passions of the flesh which peter says in chapter 2 verse 11 they wage war against your soul it's against those human passions those desires that james warns us give birth to sin and sin gives birth to death that's the war we wage. We wage a war with sin. And if we think it's a war with anything else, we've lost the war already. So as I prepared this message, it kind of struck me that what is generally a Christian assumption is not at all an assumption in the broader culture or even in the broader Christian culture today. And that assumption is sin is the problem. The enemy really doesn't have a whole lot of work to do to destroy us. He really just needs to distract us from the real battle and we'll destroy ourselves from the inside out. The prevailing misconception is that sin is not really a problem. Uh, this month has been named Celebrate Pride Month. By whom or on whose authority, I don't know. But it, on Google's homepage yesterday, there's a little link below the search bar and it had the word Celebrate Pride Month. And hashtag, this is family. And if you were bold enough or dumb enough to click on the link, you would be treated to this slideshow of, of homosexual couples laughing, playing with their children. You know, this normalization of sin, the world tells us, your, your, your desires define you. What you want is what you are. Your desires are what define you. Peter says here in dramatic contrast, live out the rest of your life not for those human passions, but for the will of God. And a person armed with a Christ-like mindset has, uh, in a very real sense, already won the battle. Not, not perfectly, of course, but sin no longer exercises dominion. Because then the reason it does it doesn't exercise dominion anymore is because the person who has suffered for the name of Christ is one who has entered into an entirely new status or a new person, a new identity. We who have died with Christ now live with him. And we steadily lose our appetite for human passions. We more and more long to live for the will of God. 
Ed Clowney says, our, dis- our decisive suffering in the body is that which we share with Christ who suffered in the body for us. It is nothing less than death that separates us from a life of sin. So our death with Christ is our victory and our freedom in the war with sin. And notice, this is a decisive victory. It's not something we can gain again and lose again and gain again and lose again. Look at his phrase in verse 2. He says, the rest of your time in the flesh. The rest of your time. And notice the contrast with verse 3. The time that is past suffices for what, for doing what the Gentiles want to do. So you have the rest of the time and you have the time that is past. Do you see that this is more than in just a case-by-case decision to stand against temptation here and to fail here, but it is a change in status. There's two very distinct phases in life pictured here. There's a clear dividing line between the two. There's the past, you did those things in the past, but the time is past is enough for those things. Now, in the present, spend the rest of your time in the flesh living for the will of God. That's the difference between the old man and the new man. The old man lived for self with self-determined standards. The new man lived for the will of God and with the mind of Christ. Now, how does Peter know that the time past is enough? I mean, isn't it different for every person? Maybe there's a young fellow in his audience who hasn't yet had the opportunity to exercise his wild hairs. I mean, shouldn't everybody have the right to have a little bit of, of fun before they grow up and mature and become Calvinists and ruin everybody's fun? <laughs> Peter knows it's enough because any amount of human passion is always enough. I thought to describe it this way, Cohen and Zoe, the time past is enough for you to live in your human passions. <laughs> He knows human passions only bring heartache in the end. And he knows that the older Christians in his audience, as former pagans, I'm sure, could attest to that pain. And all of this brings us back around to where I started. How are we going to spend the rest of our time in the flesh? And, and Peter's answer is neither so basic as YOLO, you only live once, nor is it so simplistic as to say, work hard and repay the debt of gratitude you owe Jesus. His answer is more powerful and practically useful. His answer is Christ suffered in the flesh. You're united to him in his death and suffering. So follow in his footsteps. Therefore, because of Christ's suffering, take on his mindset for yourself. It's with that way of thinking that we take up arms against the human passions which wage war against our souls. Now, if we take that road, that mindset of Christ, we had better be prepared to suffer for it. Because it's going to bother folks. He says in verse 4, With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So you can picture these people, many of whom were likely first-generation converts from paganism to Christianity. And that list in verse 3 sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry, 
would have been a major component in their societal life and even in their religious life. So I think about this in more simple terms. If you know, you see those tribes and they do like these these rituals to bring the rain for the crops. And I always think about if somebody becomes a Christian, how they would be looked down upon. Like you, you don't care about rain, you don't care about the crops. You're not going to join us in our ritual. We need rain. Don't you care about us and about feeding your children? You'd be very quickly ostracized. Maybe perhaps in our a more epicurean or hedonistic society, we might, it might, the questions might simply be more, well, don't you like to have fun? Are you some kind of a prude? Are you so afraid of God that you can't live a little? And Peter says here, they're shocked when you don't want to join them, and quite literally to plunge into the same flood of debauchery, and so they malign or blaspheme you. I think we've all had that experience I'm sure even if it's something innocuous like foods I like, like I say I like sauerkraut. Ooh, sauerkraut, that's gross. Are you some kind of weirdo? You like sauerkraut? And it's like, oh, that stings. Because it's like, it's not just a dig on sauerkraut, but it's a dig on me. I like sauerkraut. You know? <laughs> so, but that you can see that that's the kind of shock and disappointment the world must feel when we don't like the things that they like. These are the things that make me me. These are the things I enjoy. These are the things that my family's done for generations. These are the things our society revolves around. You know, how dare you make a moral judgment by abstaining? Are you too good for us? What makes you think your standard of morality is higher than mine? Or who, who gave you a monopoly on God? Yeah, our abstinence is not just abstinence, but it's seen as, a, as an indictment. And so, as a response, they malign us and malign our character. But by the grace of God, by, from our vantage point, we are allowed to stand firm on the, the shores above the flood of debauchery, and we can see what they can't see. We can see as they run, sprint by us and do a cannonball, saying, come on, the water is cool and refreshing, it feels good in this flood of debauchery, we can see a hundred yards downstream that there's a waterfall. And if we're doing our job, we're warning them of the danger ahead, pleading with them to come out before it's too late. And all the while, we are maligned and mistreated for our efforts. However, it has been consistently demonstrated through First Peter, we will, in the end, be vindicated as Christians. Psalm 73 is a great picture of this. You can turn there if you want. Psalm 73, 12 through 19. Psalm 73, 12 through 19. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And I have said, I will speak thus, and I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task. You sympathize with that? Until I went to the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. 
Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. So the faithful of God's people have always been the subject of malignment and mistreatment. But we know that in His perfect providence, we will in the end be raised up and our tormentors will receive their reward. That's why He says in 5 and 6, But they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So to kind of borrow an R.C. Sprolism, in the final analysis, the flood of debauchery will be found lacking in its ability to fulfill all that it promises. It might feel good for a season, it might uh, be appealing to the eyes, but it is a fleeting pleasure. And no one, he says, from all time and history around the world will be left free from giving account to the judge. Hebrews says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And he says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So that second part is our hope, our own willpower to abstain from the desires of the flesh is is not enough. It is in Christ, offered once for sins, that we find liberty and hope. And it's that gospel to which Peter refers in verse 6. He says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So death and suffering are a problem if you're going to go around claiming you have a perfect king and a perfect savior. Right? I mean, what gives if he's so great? Why are you dying? Why are you suffering? Peter alludes to this in in 2 Peter. He says, Knowing first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Paul also confronts this in in 2 Thessalonians. He says, But we don't, don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So Peter's point here, I think, is that all men die. Now that's the judgment on all flesh. We all face just judgment, pagan and Christian alike. In Adam, all die. But through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we live. Calvin says, It is then a remarkable consolation to the godly that death itself brings no loss to their salvation. Though Christ then may not appear a deliverer in this life, Yet his redemption is not void or without effect, for his power extends to the dead. So I think Peter's purpose here is to instill confidence in us and in his audience. Persecution, malignment, suffering, that, that can make a person feel very small and very weak. But he directs our attention to the judgment of the wicked and to our source of true life as if to say, even in those lowest moments when you're spit upon by the world, remember who you are. 
Remember you are united to Christ. You are following in the path that He forged. You have resurrection life. Don't give in. Persevere. And that, I think, is the temptation. When we counter resistance, we want to give in. It would be easier just to compromise just a little bit. If I just go with the flow of the crowd, I won't have to put up with all of this. And Peter here encourages and emboldens our hearts by saying, don't give up. Fight. Take up arms. Arm yourself with Christ's attitude that God's will is worth suffering for. Human passions aren't cracked up what they're cracked up to be. And in the fact, in fact, in the end, it's a kind of suffering and death that are unknown in this world. He's telling us essentially, press on, believer. You are on the right side of history because in Christ you are on the right side of God's will. So I want to conclude here by pointing us back to this gospel of Jesus as summed up here in verse 18 of chapter 3. Sums it up so well. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ suffered and died one time that all who believe in him will have their sins forgiven. He, the perfectly righteous one and the spotless lamb, died for we, the unrighteous, who are happily swimming wholeheartedly in that sewery flood of debauchery. And all of this that he might present us before his Father in his perfect righteousness. And now, though we die, though we suffer, we live, and we follow in the footsteps of our elder brother Jesus. As he died in the flesh and lives in the Spirit, we also die in our flesh and live the resurrection life unto God. So, brothers and sisters, be armed with that way of thinking. Amen. Amen. Let's uh, take our hymnals again. We'll stand to sing. A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. 175.